Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way in which you speak into our lives and you show us the character of the Father, his righteousness and his gracious and steadfast love for his children. And also, Lord Jesus, for the work of the Spirit in our lives that bears witness, Lord, that convicts the world of sin, but also points us to the salvation that we have in you. And we just thank you for this time and the way in which we've seen from Genesis through Revelation, there is a true word with a beginning, hit a middle, and an end that is found in you. And we just ask that our time this morning would be fruitful as we continue to hear, Lord, um, instruction and lessons about worship, especially uh, with a right understanding of the Old Testament. So thank you for these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Before I get to questions with Dr. G, um, I wanted to uh, just draw a few connections, maybe a little bit, um, for our theme of worship. This time is meant to equip our church, and especially those of you who are serving in some way, shape, or form on a Sunday, uh, to bring us to a right view of worship, a view of worship that comes from God's Word and a view of worship that comes from the gospel. We have a tendency when I grew up and when I was raised, the thought of worship was basically going to church on Sunday. And I think sometimes that gets reduced a little bit further where worship is synonymous with the worship team. And the worship team are the people who stand in the front and sing songs, sometimes while we participate, sometimes not, right? This idea of singing or an activity that's done as being what worship is. But it's helpful sometimes, many times always, to go back really to the word of the Lord and also, as we heard this morning, really the life and example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would make a case, especially with Romans 12, that the entirety of our Lord and Savior's life and ministry while he was here on earth, whether he was in the synagogue or whether he was ministering to a woman at a well, the entirety of it was worship. There is a participation by faith in the work of the Father and the Word of the Father that every aspect of his life came from a heart that was devoted, as we've heard this morning, to making known the greatness of our God, the greatness of his characteristics and his attributes and his love for his people. And so when we come even to the New Testament text, as we walk through First Peter, if you guys have your Bibles, maybe you can look at First Peter, and we'll go uh, to a place that's see if I can get rid of my stuff here. If you have a look at 1 Peter 1.16, 1 Peter 1.16, where Peter makes a statement, he says, as it is written, making a reference to the written word of God and very specifically to the law, he says, you shall be holy for I am holy. And he points to the character of the God who has saved us, but also to what he asks and requires and commands of his people. And Peter's taken this from Leviticus 11.44 and Leviticus 19.2. And then if you drop down to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter, again, is making reference to, I hope Dr. Grisanti would say, my Hebrew professor, but there's a foundation that has been laid in the Old Testament that is finding its fulfillment in Christ and in God's work of salvation in his people in the New Covenant and the New Testament. And I think it's helpful as we think of worship to remember first who our God is and how he has revealed himself in and through his son, Jesus Christ, but also who we are too. Every second, every minute, every moment. I think one of the huge encouragements to me, as I've shared with you many times, is people walking in and interacting as visitors with the setup team or interacting with guys who are moving things out of the storeroom in the back or the parking lot duty and just being encouraged by their interactions with you that what you're doing is more than just lifting a table or directing people in parking spots. But as we heard this morning, you are a messenger of God who is bringing and portraying and representing the greatness of the God who has saved you in Christ. And that is just a sweetness and a kindness and a blessing for all of us. I know for my boys especially, I want to say that's just a huge, huge blessing for them. This so far, by God's grace, has just been a safe place. And they're able to make a distinction between the families and the people they interact with in a public school and the families who interact here and those who serve here on a Sunday. And I just hope that that testimony continues to grow. Dr. Mayhew and Dr. MacArthur make this statement, from predestination to glorification, the Bible is the story of God redeeming his chosen people for the praise of his glory. And as we go to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, it's a reminder that glory is a testimony to the glory of God's grace, his unmerited favor to his people. Can I have my next slide, please? Okay. I'm just going to make a point about worship in the household of God. We've asked you, if you're able to, the book we're going through is Sinclair Ferguson's Devoted to God's Church. Fine. Presbyterian. Don't hold that against me, Dr. G. Um, Yeah. But by chapter two, one of the points that he makes, and I hope you'll have a chance to read it, has everybody gotten a book? We've subsidized it. It's five bucks, and David goes arranged. If you don't have it, see him. We'll get you a copy for for five dollars. But in his second chapter, he works through the story of someone who is part of God's family. And in the first section, he walks through in his membership interviews people's stories that they come of why they should belong to his church. And there's a spectrum of why people come in. But he comes to the Apostle Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3, and he points out the story that God gives every child and member of his household. And he walks through three steps. And the first one is who Paul is by nature, that he's blinded by his heredity and his choice. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, according to the law, blameless and righteous. Okay, that's part of his story. I'm good enough. And then the second aspect of his story is truth revealed. That in Paul's journey and testimony as he encounters the risen Lord, he becomes aware that 
his excellence, his zeal, his righteousness, his heredity and his choice fall well short of the righteousness of God and the glory of God. And then the third aspect, receiving salvation by grace through faith, receiving Christ's righteousness and our membership in God's household and worship. That, and, and Ted, I think, alluded to this. None of us really deserve to be here. None of us deserve to be part of God's family whether we're at seminary or whether I'm in the pastorate, whatever it is, at the end of the day, our presence as part of the household of God is a gift of grace that we receive by faith, not through works of the law or religiosity in a church, right? And what I want to put before you just to continue to remind you, we've touched on this before, of what is involved in worship. I'm not saying this is what worship is. I'm saying what's involved in worship. Worship involves honoring, serving, and praising by faith the triune God who has saved us and brought us into his presence and into his family for his glory according to his word. Now, that's a mouthful. I still think it's a little shorter than Dan Block's definition and... uh Peterson's definition. But anyways, Dr. Uh, Grisanti can correct me on our way to the airport shortly after on this. But I want you to keep in mind that we participate in worship. It's a participation in God's work that we're able to participate in and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith. And it's a gift of grace from him. Okay, so I'm going to get you to hold that thought and we're going to make a transition to our Q&A, okay? Um, Dr. G, one of the things I wanted to open with, um, you spend a lot of time in Israel, probably two or three trips a year, and you are, as I learned this morning, the chair of the Old Testament department at uh, TMS, for what that's worth. And uh, I wanted to see if you could give us maybe a biblical perspective for this war that just has broken out over the last couple of days and the conflict that's uh, happening in Israel and maybe how we should be thinking about it biblically or through uh, a biblical grid. <clears throat> and I don't want to take too much time with this because it's uh, it take most of our time. <clears throat> On the one hand, we are uh, wanting to see righteousness prevail and, and wickedness be limited, right? So um, this is the, um, I think it's Satan-inspired. It's evil. But uh, it's a version of Islam that uh, it's kind of like uh, 1967 Yom Kippur, where with the holiest day in their calendar, everybody reduced skeletal staff and six Arab nations attacked. Well, that was Shabbat. It's the same day, October 6th, that it was in 1967, but it was Shabbat. So again, they're, they're kind of distracted by trying to be good Jews. But it's, it's still, it's, um, I'm kind of thinking broadly, humanly speaking, that it's, it's inspired by darkness and evil and uh, by a, a movement that uh, hurts its own people and they're kidnapping innocent girls, boys, 
and, and adults as hostages who may never see the light of day again. They're uh, given to all kinds of atrocities. So uh, just as a human being in a world, I mean, I'm glad for the reaction of the world so far that has been not happy with what they've chosen, but I have to think that in about two weeks, they're going to change their tune and they're going to go after Israel for being too hard. So what, what, what do we do? I'm going to come back to the eschatological thing in a minute. I would just say I'm praying that believers, in particular first and foremost in Israel, would have strength just to live life. I have a, a text through a friend from a guy I work with in Israel, and his heart is broken as two of his kids have to get called up as reservists to be into the fray. And we're talking about not antiseptic warfare. The, the Gaza, when they cross those walls, it's going to be trouble at every corner, snipers. I mean, it just is really hard that God would help protect his children, and then that God would have righteousness prevail. And... Um, because that's what anybody should want. I, um, I'm praying that God would, through this, drive people to confront their mortality and their unpreparedness for eternity, that uh, they need Christ. Christians are a minority, big minority in Israel, and God could use this to help them face-to-face with their demise, realize that what they have doesn't give them any assurance because it's a work salvation so just as a, as a believer, not thinking about the eschatological issues, I'm praying for righteous to prevail, for evil to be crunched, and for the gospel to have free reign, to bring home to mind things they've heard, and gospel witnesses and the soldiers among them to have them be transformed by the gospel. The, the, the larger issue is, as I you know, there are people in, in the world today who would say that Israel's presence in the land is the fulfillment of biblical predictions of being restored to the land of promise. And the amazing ways they've been able to grow things in the desert is the fulfillment of what Isaiah and Ezekiel talk about as a, an oasis, a desert becoming an oasis. And I think they've got it wrong. Um, I do think providentially God... If you're going to have a tribulation where the Antichrist is going to enter into a treaty with Israel, providentially, it's like I liken it to a room. You have to have certain pieces in the room before this fulfilled event happens with the rapture and the coming of the Antichrist. So I think Israel, providentially in God's plan, needs to be in the land of Israel for that next set of events to happen. But I think that the prophets, when they predict the return of God's people to the land and the turning of a desert into an oasis, is referring to, at the end of the tribulation, when the Antichrist efforts are obliterated by the intervention of Jesus the Messiah returning, wiping out the forces of the Antichrist. And in fact, everybody on earth at that point in time who's not a believer dies. And it's just believers that are then survive the tribulation, believing Jews are restored to the land of Israel, the promised land, and throughout that world, God's kingdom is established where the entire world is kind of Edenic, Garden of Eden, um, fertility on steroids. I mean, it, it'll just be amazing. And so that that's the desert to oasis talk. That's fulfillment there. Nation returning, 
because God's going to rule and reign over the entire world, and a wedge of that kingdom involves Israel, restored to the land of promise because they are his firstborn. He promised them in Abraham to the covenant that he would establish the kingdom over all the earth in Genesis 1, but that he would provide them a land on which they could live life that would be honoring him. So that hasn't happened yet. So when I look at Israel today, in, in the Arab world, it's one of the only Judeo-Christian-friendly kind of governments. They're the only one that are committed to some kind of justice, righteousness, and kindness. The rest of them are dog-eat-dog. Arabs in most Muslim countries have fewer rights than they do in Israel. So I have a empathy for them as a nation, even though it's a secular state, even though there are folks in that government that want to suppress the spread of the gospel. It's not a perfect place. They are God's people. So I'm, I'm not saying the fulfillment of prophecy has happened, and therefore I have to agree with everything they choose to do. As a human being, I'm grieved. But the darkness of sin is like Hitler, if you will. The darkness of sin and its, its desire to rip apart a country that is committed to a sense of fairness and what's right and all that. So I'd, I'd like it. What I said I'd pray for is what I'll pray for. And then number two, I I just would not get caught up with the need to agree with everything Israel does because they're God's chosen. I think I think they are God's chosen. I, generally, I've seen throughout history people who have gone toe-to-toe and wanting to wipe out Israel. It does not go well with them. He, he curses those who curse Israel. He blesses those in some fashion who bless Israel. They are his firstborn. They are his people. But I'm not going to change my interpretation of prophecy to where sometimes you have to agree with everything they do because they're God's chosen people. A fulfillment of prophecy when I would say it's a secular state and I pray for God to make the gospel free to impact people and to stymie even the efforts of a government that is committed to a non-Messianic machinery-driven Judaism. That may have totally confused you. I don't know. Well, it's good. Dr. G, you touched on this this morning in your sermon um, when you made reference um, to some of the ancient texts of the other religions. But when we go back, well, context, most of us here have grown up in Christian homes, right? How many people here sort of grew up with some connection with church? Okay, so the, the vast majority. And so for most people, a lot of the traditions, a lot of the stories sound familiar. It, it tends to be our focal point. Um, but we're rapidly living in a society in America that is aggressively pursuing a pagan worldview and a pagan framework. It's going that direction on many, many levels. Um, what set in the Old Testament the worship of Israel apart from the worship of the surrounding nations? Well, I mean, the fact that you have a, you have one God who is actually intervening in human affairs in concrete, memorable, witness ways and reveals himself to his people so they understand who he is. I mean, again, in the religious literature, it's mythological literature, they talk about great things they did, creation, even the creation of the world and the ancient Eastern myths is you have all these gods kind of wrestling with each other, who gets first place, I get dibs on this group of people, 
and and, and uh, subordinate gods are stymieing their effort to subordinate them. It's just crazy. Where the Bible presents God, one God, not denying the Trinity. You know, it's, it presents emphatically the Lord. I do think there are passages in the Old Testament that teach the Trinity, but that gets much more developed in the New Testament. Who is intervening in human affairs? Who is a God who promises and delivers in a way that matches the promise in human affairs? And now, again, because I believe the Bible is what it says it is, then I take that at its word. But there are historical evidences in archaeology of this event, that person, that reality having happened that uh, matches what the Bible says. I, I'm not using that to prove the Bible, but it, I think I call them archaeological high fives, where it's kind of like, yeah. But it's still, it's, 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 uh, that, that's what sets apart. So there's a God who's worthy of worship. The whole, uh, God, the God Baal and Elijah and the prophet, and the prophet Elijah and Mount Carmel. I mean, the total conclusion was at the end when the fire fell from heaven after what a 30 second prayer, when the God of Baal was the God of storm, thunder, rain, lightning, and supposed to be all powerful, he had, he had for three years, he hadn't been able to turn the faucet back on. God had shut the faucet off. There was a drought. Baal couldn't do a thing about it for three years. And out that Mount Carmel thing, he had, they had like six hours at least to be able to convince him to send fire from heaven. And that's, that's one of his fast pitch areas. Lightning, nada. 30 seconds, whoosh. Well, the conclusion is obvious. Empty windbag, God who acts. I should be worshiping that God, right? So I would say it's just totally different in that um, multiple gods, they don't get along, they don't care about their people. It's uh, feed me, and, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smack you in the back of the head, but you aren't going to know what you did wrong or who's doing this. So it just is confusion and chaos, which is what our world is. The kinds of things people in your life who don't embrace a life-changing gospel, it's like, what in the world? Why, why would they want dust and ashes? Doesn't meet needs, doesn't satisfy heart desires. It doesn't take care of ultimate values, but it's, it's avoiding God. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's just as drastic and clear. And the psalmist makes the point that we become like the idols we worship, you know, and so this chaos that we're seeing. And one of the reasons I ask this, my boys are, are studying in grade six public school education. They're going through uh, ancient Near East. And the tendency is based on the trend over the last 200 years of comparative religions is they're all the same. Here's this myth. Here's this myth. Here's this myth. There's a flood myth in the ancient Near East. As you see, these are just common traditions for all men. They're all the same. But when you actually read the ancient Near East mythologies, there are major, major differences there that set apart uh, what the pagan religions are and what the people are like as a result and the nature of the one true God and his holiness. Part of this, the only way that we can really move down this road is our biblical worldview. That we and it, is, it is a bit of a circular reasoning, I grant you. I believe that the Bible is what it says it is. It is inspired and errant, true, authoritative, infallible, and all of that. And the Bible says that. I'm not trying to prove the Bible first and then accept its authority. I, 
I think I see the testimony of transformed lives. I, I see lots of archaeological high fives. I mean, those things are on the side, but ultimately I'm believing the Bible is what it says it is. And when you believe the Bible is what it says what it says it is, then it's very clear that God is the one who did the creation and God is the one who, who did the flood. And all of these things are spinoffs of that it preceded the event, preceded these myths, even though the the Pentateuchal description of creation and flood are after those myths, because Moses wrote them down. Israel would have known about them all the way back to the very beginning, where Adam and Eve. So in those conversations with your kids, you're going to come back to a biblical worldview where you're going to say, you know, this is not even, Steve. This is not just equally compelling. It's the Bible is what defines for us our worldview. And, and by the way, parents, when you think about your kids, helping develop a biblical worldview, which creates the foundational values for how you believe, what you believe, and what you, how you live, isn't done enough. Because when there, then their kids get swallowed up by another worldview that looks equally compelling. Now, the, the teachers aren't going to like it, and toe-to-toe with the university prof, they're going to say, ours was before yours. I mean, I have this myth from 3000 B.C. about a flood, and yours is from 1,000-something B.C. So mine's first, mine's best. What I want us to realize, and for university students, that with a biblical worldview, the Bible is our ultimate authority. The Bible is what presents truth. And there's all kinds of things that support that, but it's because I believe firmly that the Bible is what it says it is. You can't let go of that, or you're without an anchor. And so in our kids, we help them realize, even though in that classroom, they're, they're, they're going to be crunched, if they try to argue that way, because they're going to be brain brainwashed or whatever, just make sure we're pursuing that in our own lives and in our kids' lives, that they walk into these circumstances. Yeah, I totally believe what the Bible presents. That is my foundational truth that brings clarity to what's truth and what isn't. Otherwise, there is no truth. It's all equally compelling. It's a postmodern deal. I'm not sure if that helped. It does. Dr. G, can you speak... Um, in connection to that, in the Old Testament, the role of the written word in worship? Well, I mean, it, you get, it's not like you have a development in how worship of God took place from Old and New Testament and the coming of the church and the euangelion, the gospel, and the preached word. But I would say, when you think about uh, God giving his law to his people, Ten Commandments and the other laws. In, in in Exodus 19, which is where Peter got three of the phrases in 1 Peter 2.9, in Exodus 19, he, they've already had the Noahic covenant, they had the, the, the Abrahamic covenant. And in, in, in Exodus 20, you're going to have the beginning of the Mosaic route called the Israelite covenant with the Ten Commandments and all the laws that follow. The In Exodus 19, God says to them, he wants them to know who he is. Verse 3 tells Moses, tell this to Israel. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up in eagle's wings and brought you to myself. 
He wants him to realize that he is absolutely, totally, comprehensively, exhaustively responsible for them being at the base of Mount Sinai and not as slaves in Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt, ten plagues, crossed the Red Sea, met their physical needs, guided them flawlessly. He brought them here. He had invested in them already. In that regard, just skip ahead to chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. This is an important front porch. Verse 2, the first commandment is verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. But verse 2, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He wants them to know the, the relational front porch to the, not only the Ten Commandments, but the law, is that he's the God, a God who intervened in their midst. He's a God who delivered them from a hopeless predicament. And then in addition to that, as that God who, who was the one who carried you on eagles and brought you to myself, he's not come to them as a stranger. He says, so now if you'll listen to my voice, if you'll indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, yeah, chapter 20 and following, not the Abraham covenant, but the one that's around the corner, God propositionally, objectively, with clarity, provides an understanding of who he is and what he expects. It's unparalleled. Let me read one other passage. Look at Deuteronomy 4. In, in Deuteronomy 4.32, chapter 4 is kind of a sermon by Moses on the incomparable God and how that should motivate their obedience. And he starts with, verse 32, these rhetorical questions that expected no answer. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on earth and inquire from one end of heaven to the other. This is the research project of cosmic proportions, right? Back to the day of the of creation of mankind and from one end of the heavens to another, ask this question. Has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? And the great thing he's talking about is a God forming a nation for himself out of a, a horrible predicament. A God bringing his plan to pass by creating a nation of people related to each other that's going to be the tool through which he worked for the next several centuries. And the answer is no, nothing like it. Look at the next verse, 33. Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and lived? Now the point there isn't, are there folks out there that heard the voice of God speak out of the fire and died and you guys were lucky enough to live? The, the, the point here is that, has any other nation ever had a God reveal himself propositionally, objectively, with clarity, with his expectations and his character on display? So they were, they were not left in the dark. And well, the answer is no. Because you look at all those myths in the ancient Near East, and there's a prayer I could send you, a Sumerian prayer from about 2000, 3000 B.C., where the guy is saying to the god or goddess, I don't know, and he, he goes through about 10 lines trying to cover all the gods that are out there possible, and to the thing I might have done, or the, and he has no idea what he did wrong, but he's totally ready to get cuffed in the back of the head for offending a god for something he didn't know, a god he didn't know, and, a, and something he didn't know he did. He's in the dark. That's different. God revealing himself, even though I don't want to live under the law, because I don't have to, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a Christian, so the law is not law for me. I have to live under the law of Christ, law of love, law of liberty. There are requirements and prohibitions that I, I happily obey, but 
I'm not trying to say we're under the law, the Mosaic law, for as law for us as believers. But I will tell you, the law is God's grace gift. God revealed both who he is and what he intended in concrete, understandable, propositional, objective ways. He didn't leave them in the dark. He didn't leave them without a a set of expectations. He did that to enable them to have a concrete understanding of how to live in a way that honored his name. Wow. This is great. And so that's part of what sets it apart is God revealing him his expectations, repeating them and being consistent and having those things be a revelation of his character. That's why when you think about uh, the the purpose of the law, I'd say it's fundamentally to help God's people have this understanding of how to live in a way that honors his name, but it also was a point of condemnation. You put Mike Chrysanti next to those laws and the righteousness they, they, they envision, and guess what you have? You have a loser and a bum. You have a guy who's lost on his own. And so it does reveal that, but it is, it is uh, the blessing is, is that it has those other functions, but God revealed himself with clarity. So that means that we should want to know that word and live by it. That's how we show the world what he's like. And, and that, that's the thing with the, the larger world. They don't have that voice. They don't have that clarity. It's just the blind leading the blind. Dr. G, as we hear and want to hear rightly the Old Testament, I think in Christendom, there can be two extremes. One is the Old Testament's irrelevant. Christ has come. We live under the law and liberty of Christ, as you said. And then there's the other side, which is these are all promises for my personal benefit and fulfillment. So I'm going to name and claim all these Old Testament promises that God has made. So can you help us maybe have a a right and correct way in which we should understand the Old Testament and maybe use the Old Testament? Yeah, there's no way I can do that as surely as we need to. But um, the fundamental point is, on the one hand, that we are not under the Mosaic law as law. There are things we can learn about who God is, what he does. There are things that reveal his character to us. There are principal issues that are repeated in the New Testament, but so I want to make sure we don't bring the burden of the Mosaic law on us as law. We're not called to obey that. Having said that, there's again, there's all kinds of relevant resonations that, that I'm not going to try to unearth here. And I would say that we'll be, we'll be, by handling the Old Testament correctly, we're trying to understand. We get the chance to understand God in a much more vivid way. In the New Testament, we have analytical truths about this or that or the other, to redeem, holiness, you know, profit, whatever. In the Old Testament, both in, in narrative and longer prophetic passages, we get a fuller picture of what, like redemption. For us, redemption is an individual salvation experience. I'm redeemed. But it really only has that powerful individual salvation impact by realizing when God redeemed Israel, out of Egypt, he extricated them from a horrific circumstance from which there was no human hope. At a national level, he delivered them from that circumstance by, through his right hand and his outstretched arm, through his power. 
And so then when I think about redeeming, and then, by the way, he says in Isaiah that he redeemed Israel as a nation, not just, it goes back to that. He created them as a nation. So those things are part of us going to the New Testament and reveling in what the significance of redemption is. We get a fuller version of holiness. Holiness is more than just moral purity, as great as that is. In the Old Testament, you have holiness, and well, the word involves separation from what's sinful and what's common. You have, you have, you have, um, I'm more, I should say, I can say more, but I'm not great to. Um, so the point is, when you have, uh, you have moral purity was part of it. Holiness involves separation from sin. But it also involves separation from what's common, or the other way of saying it is consecration. So uh, when you think about the uh, lampstand, the golden lampstand of the bread of the showbread table, or the temple building, those buildings are holy. Did they not commit sin lately? Is that the point? The answer is no. That's not the issue. They're taken out of common circulation and put into consecrated use. It's like, I don't know what happened when you and you grew up at, in our, at our house. You'd have it like Christmas china or Christmas silverware or whatever, something that's only brought out for certain holidays. could be the, the dish you eat, the Chinese or Asian dish you eat a certain time of the year that you know is, you just ache for or want to avoid. Depends. So the, the point is, this is set apart. And so the, the thing what I'm saying is, if we, if we go to the Old Testament and we're trying to understand God's value system, I'm not saying those, those consecration rules or those things about... Uh, concrete life under the law or the what come across, but it, I understand holiness better. I understand that when God says, be holy as I am holy, he's saying, yes, be morally pure, be separate from what's sinful, but it also means separate from what's common. That means we're called to lead extraordinary lives or consecrated lives, not just like every other Californian, but like a, a God worshiper, put him on display now, not in the California dream, the American dream isn't what I'm pursuing. It's a life that counts. I mean, I've prayed for years, and I'm not perfect to this, that God would help me to have a, an eternally significant life, that God would help me see the world as his vineyard. Well, that's not the American dream. And I, I'm, I have a house, and you know, I, have a car, I have cars, and you know, I have stuff. So I'm not saying we can't do any of that. I'm just saying I, I understand that value system filled out more in the Old Testament. It just is... Um, what we want to do is realize that the whole counsel of God was given to us to help us be compelled to have a growing understanding of who God is to revel in who he is and be able to, as a result, be able to live out to each other in the larger world who he is. I mean, that's job one. And the Old Testament helps us understand that. So the Old Testament is a means of filling out some concepts in the Bible that are really, really important. And I'm not focusing on law-keeping. It's always been relational. Um, Micah 6, the passage I just harvested some verses out of. In my mind, at the end, he showed you what his old man was good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly, love, mercy, and welcome you with your God. The emphasis in, in Micah 6 is God is not interested and never has wanted a law-focused life. He wants a relationship-driven life that shows up in obedience, right? So it isn't like, I don't want to obey. I'm not an antinomian, but I think in the Old Testament throughout the Bible, it's, it's that that's the point, is God wants it inside out. It's on display in lots of passages. 
I just think we miss it sometimes where we pursue the dotting of the I's and crossing of the T's and ritualistic obedience when what God wants is our hearts. And that's on display in the Old Testament. That that was way probably didn't hit what you wanted me to talk about, but it is a helpful tool though for us to be mindful of the relationship which we lose sight of and the propensity, our propensity to be law driven people. That's our flesh to some degree, right? Um and I wanna bring it back last question, because I've got to get you to a plane. Um but one of the recurrent themes that starts in the Old Testament is God saving a people for himself and for his glory, for that relationship, restoring them to that right relationship. And that is contrasted with the idolatry, the persistent idolatry that takes people out of that relationship and out of that worship. Dr. G, how can we think about that testimony and its right application, let's say, to our world and our time and our lives as people of the new covenant? Well, when you think about the Mosaic, or I'd call it the Israelite covenant, you imagine a circle, it's the nation of Israel. Then you have a circle inside of that that's believing Israel, right? And so the there are various reasons why I would call the Mosaic covenant the Israelite covenant, the main one being it was made with Israel, now made with Moses. But it's a national covenant. That means there are going to be people who are Israelite who are participating in the Mosaic Covenant because they're Israelites and they're not believers. So that means throughout the Old Testament, you have you see a remnant. Read the Psalms and you read they're celebrating in the law and the chance to honor God and to live according to his expectations. And you have examples of God honoring conduct. The remnant is always always there and always at work. You have the nation of Israel that is uh, that that can try to be well behaved and, and and obey on the outside, but they their hearts were far from God and and they never were in a relationship with Him that was redemptive. They had a as a nation of God's choosing Israel. They were part of this nation through whom God determined to work in the Old Testament. I think He's going to return to them in. Um, in the millennium, and other, more to say there. I think, so what we have is we have people that never had a redemptive relationship with the Lord who've been acting like, trying to act like they did by offering sacrifices and keeping festival days and all of that. In the end, who they were shows up. And you have a redeem, um, a remnant group that is in a relationship with God and is just wrestling with life the sinful nature in a sinful world. What we have today is there are a lot of people in America. This is a Judeo-Christian place. Uh, it seems to be dwindling, but that Christianity could be very, very ambiguous and empty. And so, what we have to do is we want to be a church that lifts up the truth of His Word. That is a light in a dark place. That is populated by and shoulders to the task. That effort of bringing the gospel to bear in their Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the innermost part of the world. But you're also going to have folks who are going to come and attend and sit in the pews and either totally don't have a clue or are pretending they have a clue or whatever that that are, are part of your church. And you have to remember that ultimately, and God is the one who knows this perfectly, those who 
those who, for whom, those for whom obedience means something to God are believers. Let me step back. The law was given to the nation of Israel. The law asked all of Israel to obey the law, all of it, believer or unbeliever. But it's only believing Israelites that can read honor to God through obeying Him. And so they had to deal with in a larger way as a nation, with a whole, probably the majority of them being unbelievers, with that challenge of their identity, how they reveal themselves. And as we have believers like Habakkuk who are moaning and groaning about all the wickedness around him. And why won't God intervene? Well, in our day, what we have to remember is, is that we're living in a world where you have a smaller remnant that you like to have, and you have, we, we don't know some people's hearts, but we want to always be presenting the gospel. We want to be willing to develop relationships with somebody which we can ask the demanding questions uh, and with kindness and all of that. Uh, and we want to be able to bring the gospel to bear to those people around us who obviously need Christ. So I mean, we live, we're surrounded by that, right? Immersed, whether it's in a church at times that even a church like Lighthouse or neighborhoods or family members. Yeah, it's a complicated deal. I'm not sure if that scratched your itch or not, but I I think the similarity of what we're facing, Israel faced in the Old Testament, two circles, we face today as uh, God's people, Christ followers. We want to rejoice in all that we have in Christ, be thankful and be humble, knowing that we aren't perfect and yet be burdened to be a light to that, those people who come here and don't know Christ, and those people in our family who don't know Christ, and on the circle goes. I don't know if that at all is what you were... Well, Dr. G, it is helpful. Thank you. Um, last thing, how can we be praying for you and your family? I just that, um, and I always ask people to pray that I would keep loving Martha Ann, as Christ loved the church. I, I don't do it perfectly, but I mean, I... I'm I've continued to pursue purity like I have been and shepherd my kids well and my grandkids. I'm uh, you know, I'm busy and I want to use my life well in the midst of doing those other relational issues. I, I, we have four ultimate every believer has at least two ultimate values. There's four for a lot of us. It's one is a relation with God and ministry. We all have to be serving. For married, we have wife and we have kids, we have so those are the four ultimate values. What I want to do is I want to have my life not get all consumed by all these immediate value things that are okay, you know, watching a movie, reading a book, you know, going to a soccer game or whatever. They're okay. It's not a problem. But but, but I won't pray, pray that I would keep focused on ultimate values and balance my life with the things that he's put in it. Amen. Um, thank you for spending time with us this morning. We're going to give just 10 minutes um, for prayer time. Um, and if you could break into small groups. And one of the things just to consider um, is just to consider what the Lord has taught you about his character this morning, especially Christ's prophet. Uh, and the second thing to think about is Dr. Grasanti's just shared this idea of priority those values that we have, what are non-negotiables, the most important things versus, you know, the immediate things, things that come up, right? Just to think about 
how God has called us to really reflect his character in our lives, our homes, our relationships, our places of work. And maybe if you could spend a few minutes just in prayer, and then at the end, in around 10 minutes, uh, Kevin's going to come up and close our time in prayer. If you have kids and you need to go and get them, by all means, do what you need to do. Uh, But thank you for this time, and I'll let you break up into small groups at this time.